Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Okay, fun bit of philosophy for us tonight. We're going to talk about the perceptual errors of the unenlightened state. And I'm going to propose that there are three main perceptual errors. And by perceptual error, I mean something that appears to be real, but is in fact not. So the three perceptual errors are suffering. Uh, sorry, separation. Separate. That's the first one. Separation. The myth of separation. The second one is the illusion of time. And the third one is the illusion of free will. I'm proposing to you today that all these three misperceptions are responsible for a vast majority, if not all, of the suffering that we experience in our life. So to correct these misperceptions is to effectively end suffering. So that's our work today. Um, The reason I call them misperceptions or perceptual illusions is because for the most part, these three things, separation, time, and free will, for a lot of people feel like the basis of reality. So it's perceptually verifiable. Like this, this is your experience of the world. And so it's sometimes ingrained and hard to argue with. So what I'm going to suggest today is that what these things are amount to no better than an optical illusion. You know, so it's no better than the stick that appears to be bent in water that Descartes so many years ago was very skeptical of. And Descartes posed the question, he said, can I even trust my eyes? I mean, my eyes have been known to deceive me. I know that the stick in the water is bent, and yet my eyes still report perceptually. uh, Sorry, I know the stick is straight, yet my eyes still report perceptually a bent stick. You know, so we know we're, we're hip to this idea of optical illusion. Oh, hey, Daniel, I'm just now seeing you in the darkness. Welcome. And so my goal in today's talk is to show the optical illusion of these three things, separation, time, and, uh, free will. And I hope to do it through philosophy. So we'll do some arguments. I'll give you a few arguments kind of dispelling the illusion of these three things. And since this is a philosophical proof or an attempt to bring knowledge through philosophy, I hope to have a little debate. So if something doesn't quite, you know, work in your own experience of reality, if the logic doesn't quite check out, uh, please feel free to stop me at any time and debate me, since as we know, and as we've said together many times, this is the heart of Indian philosophy, debate. Okay, so let's get started. Our point of departure for today's talk is the Upanishads, or the earliest expression of Indian Gnostic philosophy. And in the Upanishadic age of India, which is around, you know, 3800 BCE, in the Indus Sarasvati Valley, which is now modern-day Pakistan, you get this idea of vidya and avidya. Vidya in Sanskrit translates to knowledge. But it's worth our time to investigate the etymology or the root of vidya, which is v, 
The root Sanskrit word V is, believe it or not, the same root in the English word video. Since, you know, there's a lot of uh, overlap between Sanskrit and English, all the Indo-European languages have a lot of overlap. Even the word yoga, you know, yoga, yukt, that wrote that uh, root yukt is the same as the English word yolk. <laughs> you know, so let's explore the root of the word vidya knowledge v. So it's the same as the root of the English word video, and it means to see. So v always translates to some kind of perceptual thing. Viveka discrimination. The root is still v. Vichara, you know. It, 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 these are all Sanskrit words that kind of mean the same thing, to see correctly, to discern, to discriminate. So this idea of seeing correctly is at the core of Indian philosophy. In fact, together we've explored various analogies like Drig Drishya Viveka, which literally means discrimination between the seer and the seen, all that stuff. So you know now, through all these times that we've spent together talking about seeing, that this yoga business, this spiritual pursuit is really a matter of seeing things the way that they are and not the way that we falsely see them. So what actually happens when you become enlightened or when you have Brahma Jnana? It's, yes, on one level, a physiological change. On one level, the parasympathetic nervous system is more dominant than the sympathetic one. There is... Um, a change in where the activity happens neurologically. So there's less activity in the prefrontal cortex, more activity in underused parts of the brain. You know, there's more of a connection between the neocortex and the limbic system. So yes, uh, there are certain physiological changes. Some argue on a cellular level, Brahma Jnana or enlightenment transforms you. Even on that level, like there's more, was it acetylation, you know, when the DNA unwinds? What myelation? One of those terms, the DNA unwinds, you get more gene expression, more immunity, lower catabolic hormones like cortisol. Sure, all of that happens to be sure. But deeper than a physiological level, what actually changes is the way you see things. That's the joke of spirituality. Nothing really changed except your perception of it. <laughs> so everything stays just where it was except the kitchen sink doesn't look the way it looked two moments ago before your Brahma Jnana. Before it was just a kitchen sink. Now, after Brahma Jnana, after knowledge and vision of God, the kitchen sink has transformed. It's still the same kitchen sink for everybody else, but for you, it's now, you know, a vision of God. So that's the irony. The, you, people always expect that when they perfect their spirituality, something very dramatic is going to happen. You know, like their body will start to exude light. Yeah, sure. People will start to pick up on your aura. And as you know, from our aura program, they'll start to say, oh, did you get a haircut? You know, uh, did you go to the gym? Sure. The face changes. The forehead is more lengthened, more relaxed. Like, yeah, but it's not that dramatic. Like light's going to pour out of every one of your pores. Uh, you're not going to float through life. The, the world might not break asunder. It's actually, I would argue, much subtler. Everything is just as it was a moment ago, yet it could not be further in perception than it was a moment ago. That's the only thing that's shifted, the way you saw stuff. So that word vidya, meaning knowledge, 
actually means correct seeing. Its opposite, avidya, means to see incorrectly. So ignorance, all it meant is you were not seeing things the way that it is. So that's what I want to correct today. And the, the three things that you're seeing that aren't actually there are separation, time, and uh, free will. Before I go further, though, I want to say that this is actually a very dramatic philosophy because it suggests that even the perceptual world of matter is an illusion. So the word that we have in the Upanishadic time for this phenomena is maya. So maya means the divider, the separator, she who separates and parses out reality into discrete perceptual objects. Maya is not seen as a thing. It's seen as a kind of power whereby you conceal yourself from yourself. And as long as Maya operates, you tend to see matter as real. So you tap the table, you tap yourself and you say, ah, that's solid. That's there. Matter is a thing. Yet the Upanishadic seers, these great philosophers of ancient India, pointed out that matter is not a thing. That what you perceive to be solid is actually empty of any reality. This should sound familiar. You know, 110 years ago, Einstein makes the same claim. Uh, and today in quantum mechanics, we're starting to see uh, even more and more evidence of the emptiness of matter. They call this in philosophy, the hard problem of matter. You can Google it. It's a very uh, wonderful part of philosophical inquiry. What is matter? And there's a philosopher, his name is Straussen, the younger Straussen, and he talks about this. He says, you know, the more we look for matter, the more matter seems to run away from us. You know, and I've mentioned this before, but John Dalton was very confident that the atom was the discrete small particle and everything was built out of atoms. And then a couple of years later, Ernest Rutherford is like shooting alpha particles <laughs> at a tin foil, and he's realizing that, you know, the particles are going through... <laughs> Atoms are all empty space, but they are reflecting. And they're reflecting in this minutest of points in the center, what he called the nucleus. And he said, okay, all the weight of the atom is there in the center. Everything else is just space, emptiness. Now we've gotten even into more trouble because we looked even deeper and we were, we're coming up with these new things, quarks, which we now call flavors. You know, that's what a modern physicist calls a quark, a flavor, because it's so non-thing-like, you know? Neil Bohr said the atoms have uh, orbitals around them, you know, and all the electrons move around the orbitals like planets move around the sun. Today in modern quantum mechanics, it's electron clouds as opposed to orbitals. So the best that quantum mechanics can say about electrons is that they appear in regions of probability. Do you see? So we've taken something that a couple of decades ago was pretty solid, an atom. And now with superstring theory and, and subatomic particle theory, it's become amorphous. It's become less of a thing. This, the Upanishadic seers pointed out in 3800 BCE, they said very clearly, in no uncertain terms, this world appears solid, but it is not solid in actuality. So they made that claim. Then... Flash forward to about 530 BCE, you know, it's hard to say exactly what the dates are here, but we get a new school of Indian philosophy known as Samkhya, and I'll write it down here, Samkhya or Sankhya philosophy. Patanjali, who writes the, not writes, but 
puts together the Yoga Sutra, sings the Yoga Sutra, I should say, and also the uh, Patanjala Yoga Shastra, which is his own commentary on his work, is a Sankhya philosopher. So Patanjali exists in the school known as Sankhya. Sankhya uses a lot of the language that you hear in today's quantum mechanics. So for instance, Sankhya calls nature Prakriti. Prakriti, spelt like this, just going to type it out here. And these words are not new to you. You've heard it many times before. But Prakriti translates perhaps best to flux or change. But if you really were to literally translate it, um, the best you could do is perhaps this. Matter hyphen energy. Isn't that interesting? That's E equals MC squared at 6 century BCE, you know? The idea was that you couldn't differentiate matter from energy. It was all one whirling flux, all one field of change. And your mind and body um, exists in Prakriti. So your mind, your very thoughts were made of the stuff of Prakriti, which in this Sankhya philosophy is just pure energy. It's like the semblance of a unified field theory. It's just a sheet of energy. In some areas, it's denser. We call that matter. You know, Einstein made the same claim with his unified field theory. So it's all that stuff. So at the end of the day, Sankhya, drawing from the Upanishads, is saying that the way we perceive matter is evolving. And your mistake is that you take what you see now to be the final word or to be what reality is. So William James, the Harvard psychologist and philosopher, would later say, let us not close our accounts with reality. You know, he, he, I think the quote is, our version of consciousness is but a flavor of consciousness and parted from it by the filmiest of, of screens are a variety of other flavors of consciousness. Until we experience those flavors, let us not close our accounts with reality. I'm paraphrasing, but William James quoted, you know, he had that quote. You can Google it. William James closing accounts with reality. Very beautiful quotes. It's like the Carl Sagan quote, you know, of philosophy. <laughs> At least mystical philosophy. Okay, then there's another quote from Shakespeare, you know, uh, Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. Hamlet says, do not... Uh, wait, he says, there is more to heaven and earth than is spoken of in your philosophy, Horatio. You know, because Horatio is very rational and he's faced with the ghost of Hamlet's dad and he's like saying, no, 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 it's a hallucination. You're, you're hallucinating. It's a vision of your grief, my dear friend. And Hamlet, who is, you know, a mystic, is saying, no, don't close your accounts with reality, Horatio. There is more to this life than what you're reading in your books. So what we're getting at here is that there is an attempt to redefine reality by showing you a new way to look at it. Yes? So that's what we're going to do now. Let's look at all of this in a new way. And the guarantee is that if you're able to see it this way, see it the way it actually is, all your suffering will disappear like waking up from a bad dream or like morning mist in the first rays of sun, you know? Because ultimately, that suffering that you experience is also an illusion. And it only exists insofar as you maintain and cling on to the three illusions that I am going to show you aren't real now. So the first is the illusion of separation. 
So let's start here. That's enough for the preamble. Let's start with the meat of today's talk. The illusion of separation. Now, this illusion is perhaps single-handedly responsible for all the suffering we experience in the world. You experienced a sense of separation the moment you were born. So the moment you took form as a baby, you know, even before that, you know, we could say when you entered into that fetal stage, that embryonic stage, there is a deep memory of being cut off from the source. This is somewhat mystical, but look at the opening of Rumi's Masnavi, his poem. He opens his poem with, listen to the hark, hark, hearken to the song of the reed flute. It sings the song of separation. You know, and you'll hear this in a lot of religious uh, devotional songs, this longing, this feeling of, oh, I've been parted from my beloved. It's like this feeling of being crammed into a room that you know is too small for you. You know, so what happens when the baby comes out? It usually gets smacked by a strange nurse and it cries and cries and cries. You know, everyone else is smiling around you and you're crying. What they see as a miracle, your birth, is to you what you used to be a, a limitless energetic being. Now you're crammed into this form. It's to you a tragedy. <laughs> so here you are crying. So we could say you have this very primal, primordial experience of separation of duality, if you will. And now it's manifested in the perceptual experience of the world being out there and you being in here. So that's what this illusion of separation feels like. You look around and you see an external world. And this world is filled with things and all of those things stress you out. You know, because there are things that you are frightened of, legitimately so, things that are dangerous to you or so you believe. Things that could harm you, things that could take food away from you, things that can uh, take sexual favors away from you, things that can physically harm you. So there are things that you fear. That's one of your deepest experiences, fear. And you know to run away from those things. That's one category. The other category, and I'm going to say there are only two categories of things insofar as you feel separate from the world. The first is fear. The second category are things that you desire. <laughs> So if it isn't something to run away from, it's something to run towards. <laughs> so there are things that you want. There's sexual favors, food, power, whatever it is. There are things that you run after and there are things that you run away from. This for a lot of people is the whole experience of life from the moment that they are conscious enough to make sense of what's going on to the moment that they die. This is what life is for them. You know, they're, they're, going to work so they can get what they want. While they're at work, they're running from what they don't want. And this is stressful. All of you who are here are here because you have felt, perhaps at some point, the stress of this paradigm, the futility and meaninglessness of this paradigm. The Buddha was probably the first in history to point out the suffering inherent in the paradigm. So, you know, before the Buddha, a lot of, a lot of philosophers were interested in what is truth, what is beauty? What is God? If God exists, can we realize it here and now or only after death? These were the questions that Indian philosophers were asking. And you can imagine that these questions are very lofty and perhaps not applicable for the day-to-day -day average person. You know, a lot of people weren't interested in answering the question, what is beauty? <laughs> you know, but the Buddha shows up and says, no, 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 no. 
You must answer these questions because they pertain to you now. They pertain to your suffering that arises from your experience of separation. The Buddha pointed out that you could suffer by virtue of getting what you want also. You know, so you know you suffer when you don't get what you want because you're chasing it. You're anxious. You're trying to struggle and fight and get it. But the Buddha said, look at your predicament. Even if you somehow manage after a lifetime worth of effort to get it all, it still won't do it for you. Because either you're going to be frightened to lose it or you no longer will be the person for whom those things are as fulfilling as you thought they would be. So his dilemma is that things change, they decay, but you change also. You decay. So given this, it is intensely painful to seek things outside of you and to think that there are things outside of you about to harm you. You know, and so what do we do about that? The illusion of separation. So let's say now this is the root of all suffering. It, people feel lonely a lot. You know, they feel very kind of separate from the people around them, even when they manage to make friends and fall in love and surround themselves with people who mean well, they still feel lonely sometimes. You know, a person who perhaps right now, and I can, you know, perhaps speak for a lot of people that right now they're living in a beautiful suburban home. Everybody in their family is healthy. They just put their kids to bed, you know, and they're sitting in bed next to their wife or husband or partner reading their book and they feel something. Just a, a, a whiff of, I don't know, I feel incomplete, you know, I'm lonely. Does anybody really know who I am? I mean, my wife knows I'm Joe Schmo, you know, my children know me as dad and my people at work know me as Johnny boy. But does any of them really know me? Does anybody really see me, you know? Um, and the worst thing is that there are roles that you have to fulfill. So with the husband, with the wife, with the partner, with the children, with the friends at work, there's a certain kind of suit that you have to put on. And as long as you're in that suit, there's always this feeling of, I just want to come out and have you see me. And some people go so far as to like, you know, in, in art, they want to be seen. So they put art out as raw as they can be, you know, just to be seen, but it never quite scratches that itch. You know, so the Buddha is saying, you might feel right now a sense of incompleteness, unfulfilledness, or you might even be feeling disempowered. You know, you might be feeling like, I'm so small, what can I possibly do? Maybe you're devoted to the environment. You want to save the environment. I was listening to that Jack Johnson album today, All the Light Above It Too. Great album. Anyway, the cover of the album is Jack Johnson. He went on a boat and went out into the ocean and just picked up trash. And the cover of the album is him surrounded by all the trash that he personally picked up. It's a very beautiful uh, cover, very harrowing cover. But you can imagine someone, you know, listening to the record and being like, wow, I, I, I want to do this. I want to like Jack Johnson. I want to save the ocean. And then you run out and you've heard the quote about the starfish, you know, like it matters to this one starfish. You've all heard that quote, but you still sometimes feel powerless to affect meaningful change in the world. Okay. So all of this uh, to say separation causes intense suffering. So why is this then not the case? So why is suffering an illusion? So I'm going to give you five arguments now to dispel suffering. If these arguments are internalized, it should change your experience of suffering. That's a pretty bold claim, hey? 
Because suffering seems really real to you. Uh, not suffering, sorry. Separation, separation. If you internalize the arguments, you should no longer feel separation on a perceptual level. That seems like a bold claim. But if you investigate it, it's not that big a promise. I'm sure you've known um, people at parties, you know, where across the room, and I love this example, you're standing across the room and you notice someone and they look cute. They look attractive, you know. They look like someone you'd be interested in. And you go over there and you start a conversation with them. And within a few sentences, you realize that you realize they're a complete jerk. They're not at all, you know, someone that you would like to date. Perceptually, they look less cute. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Or uh, I'm sure people, you know, they talk about beer goggles or I don't know, whatever it is. While you're in the state of arousal, really horny versus after postcoital clarity, our culture is full of little anecdotal experiences of when things literally perceptually change uh, following a state of illumination or something, you know. So this is not that big a promise. But its effects are quite far-reaching. So here's the way this philosophy works. There are three stages. The first one is shravana meaning listen. Shravana means to receive the teaching, to listen to it. That's always the first step. The second step is mananas. Um, mananas means to think about it or to contemplate. That's a better word, to philosophize. So once you've heard the philosophy, the next thing you have to do is work with it. Um, test it in your own reasoning, in your own life. Um, debate it, you know, resist it. There's that story about Jacob fighting God, you know, before Jacob becomes Israel, he wrestles God. So that's maybe perhaps a reference to religion isn't worth anything unless you fight it at first. <laughs> you got to wrestle with it. You got to resist it. The third stage is the most important, nididhyasana, which means integrated. So I'll just write the three steps now, shravana, mananas, and nididhyasana. Listen, think about it, and then integrate it. So these are the three steps to perform jnana yoga or the yoga of discernment and discrimination. And I know I'll be seeing Kaden and perhaps Anisha on Thursday and we're going to have a class and Michael too on just jnana yoga. And jnana yoga um, is the yoga of philosophy. And that's what we're going to be doing now. So these are the three steps. Let's start now with our shravana. Uh, four arguments for why the illusion of separation is just that, an illusion. Um, and I, I hope the arguments, the way I've laid them out, five of them, will become increasingly esoteric. So I'm going to start with perhaps the obvious and move into perhaps the subtle, you know, so that's my attempt. First one, vibes. <laughs> the reason we're not separate is because of vibes. <laughs> And I want to argue this on two levels, interpersonal level and cultural level. So on an interpersonal level, you are all familiar with that Christmas dinner where one member of the family is being a straight up bitch and ruins the whole Christmas. Do you know what I mean? Like someone is being sour and everyone else feels it. <laughs> they ruined the vibe, so to speak. They were the party pooper. And you know what? They didn't even have to say anything. You've all known, like, they don't even have to throw a fuss. They just have to be kind of surly and grumpy. Even if they, like, hide it, somehow everyone else still feels their vibe and is kind of, you know, put, put down by it. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So vibes happen on an interpersonal level. You meet people and they excite you. They raise your vibration. You know, here we are, we're all sitting together and we all feel this kind of thrill, you know, because we're in each other's vibration. We're all on the path together. So here we are in uh, Sangha or, or communion, spiritual family, you know. So there are interpersonal vibes that happen between people for better or for worse that are completely nonverbal. How to explain that? You know, like what's going on there? Maybe there are micro expressions. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, but there's some kind of thing that connects you and the other person. So at least on this level, we can accept that we're not separate from other people insofar as there's some kind of field moving between the two of us that communicates non-verbally, non-conceptually these experiences. There's also a cultural level. So on a second level, you know that art is affected a lot by its milieu, you know, or its epoch. It, it's affected by the context in which it is made. So Andre Breton is, of course, going to write the Manifesto of Surrealism. He couldn't have written it any other time except after, you know, World War I in France, you know. Um, and there are just certain cultural forces that cause people to think in certain ways. Um, you feel this right now. We're in the middle of a cultural event and you feel perhaps in your day-to-day -day life thoughts that are not yours. It's easy to, that they, they kind of masquerade as your own thoughts. But as you walk around, you notice like, wow, I, I know why I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about this now because someone in society put it out and we're all thinking about it. You know, so you might be picking up on anxieties, frustrations, sadnesses that are in the culture and not necessarily in you. So there might be some kind of field that you're in. Carl Jung called this the collective unconscious. He said, we're each of us kind of tapping into a database. You know, we're each like apps and we're all kind of drawing from the software that is this cultural um, collective unconscious. So these are two kind of psychological arguments, if you will, for why we're not actually separate. You know, there's no discrete people. It's like there's a kind of Borg or something like, like, a, like a field, you know. Um, okay, let's get to the second argument now. Mirror neurons and empathy. So this is a little bit more grounded than vibes. <laughs> But we know now in neurological studies that we've got these things they call mirror neurons and they're largely responsible for why we enjoy TV or porn, if you will, like why we get off vicariously to things. And that's because when we see something, we to a degree experience it. Our mirror neurons pick up what we see and create corresponding states in us. Some people like voyeurs will tell you that that experience is more intimate and immediate than the actual experience. You know, um, there have been researches on uh, research studies on like joggers. They'll just think about jogging and the corresponding electrical signals will go off in their body. Uh, the muscles will start to move. So mirror neurons and the experience of empathy shows you that what goes on in another also goes on in you. You know, so the idea that that's happening to that person over there and not to me is an illusion. Um, at least our study of mirror neurons and empathy shows us that it is. Okay, so far, these first two arguments, yes, yes, and we've got sociopaths, of course. And, you know, the Maya, um, we'd say, is more concentrated in sociopaths. That's why in spirituality, we like to cherish 
communal feelings or uh, empathy or sympathy because it's closer to the truth. You know, there are people who are very far from the truth and they experience suffering on the deepest levels, you know? So yes, a sociopath doesn't feel empathy to be a thing. Uh, maybe they do. I don't know. Uh, but they, you know, on this level, the experience of mirror neurons, empathy, the experience of vibes. And Roxanne, would you clarify the, what you mean by the term sickness? So if somebody else is feeling has has sickness has some aberration in their cells uh, how is that reflected in you yes good question roxanne there have been very strong case studies on nocebo effects that come mm -hmm. about from people being in close proximity with other sick people you know so it doesn't happen for doctors for some reason and uh, there's actually a whole esoteric theory behind that like doctors see themselves as a healer you know, so they've kind of affirming or reified a self-identity as the healer, not the sick, you know. But there have been cases where you kind of get uh, a transmitted, uh, a non-communicable disease, you start feeling sick too. You know, people who have partners at home sometimes feel that when your partner is sick, you also feel a little sick. You know, when your children are sick, you also feel a little sick. Um but yeah, there's a feeling where you look at someone, maybe just from the micro expressions and your mirror neurons creates a corresponding feeling in you. And the longer you have that exposure, the stronger that feeling becomes. And Austin says there was a case where a bunch of people psychogenically created the same sickness and it took over the town. Yes, exactly. There have been many studies like that. Sicknesses. It's, it's, it's funny because you would think like, oh, you know, here we're separate people. But why is it that what one person experiences, I experience too? You know, so that dispels this idea that we're discrete or that there are borders around my personhood and your personhood. You know, like you're over there and I'm over here. No, no, no. We are here and what you feel, I feel, you know. So in a way, it's a risk, right? Because every time I open this Zoom room, I'm opening myself up to all the energy here and you're opening yourself up to all my energy. But that's the way it is all the time. We are always in this field together. Okay, but so far, all I've done is proven to you that people or living beings are one, you know, or that there isn't separation. I can go further. I'm going to show you that you're not even separate from the stuff or the inanimate non-living beings, you know, because at this point in the lecture, you could say, ah, Nish, it's just mirror neurons, you know, and it only applies to living beings, especially humans like this sickness thing. Oh, Lyric, welcome, welcome. So happy to have you here, Lyric. We're dispelling the three myths, separation, time, and uh, free will. Yes, we're doing those three things. So thus far, our two arguments, the first one has been because you experience vibes interpersonally and culturally, we must be sharing in some kind of field together. This should kind of loosen the idea of a separate self, not dispel it, but loosen it. The next one is mirror neurons and empathy should further loosen the idea of a separate self. We're connected somewhat. What happens in you happens in me. But you can push back and say, Nish, this is only true for human to human relationships. And I might push back and say, no, it happens with your animals too. And then you'll push back and say, okay, fine. This statement is only good for living beings. Okay, cool. So let's go to argument three and talk about non-living beings too. Let's talk about all beings, all things. So if you take the universe as a set, a sample set, and the universe being just a set of all the possible things that are here now, or here, 
<laughs> I said now because I'm giving you a teaser for the illusion of time when we talk about B theory. But the universe, if you look out into space, you might see it as a time machine, right? You're looking at something that was there however many billions of years ago. <laughs> anyway, so let's just say the universe, taking time out of the picture, is a sample set of everything that is here now. My next argument will try to prove that we are all that same thing. And we're all connected to every other thing. And this is an argument from quantum entanglement. So it's a theory in quantum mechanics where you take a particle, you split that particle, and you move the two, uh, uh, now the split particle, the two ends to different parts of the room. And they've done it to some pretty kind of intense distances, like I think 14 kilometers in one of the papers I read. And whatever you do to one part of that particle, the other part experiences too. It's very mysterious, they don't really know why it happens, but if you change the spin of particle A, the spin of particle B changes too. If you change the charge of particle A, the charge of particle B changes too. Now, the reason they think that happens is because at some point they were one particle. Now they are two, so naturally there's something that connects them. There is some sympathetic link between the two. No, they don't really know what it is. Um, super string theory tries to address this phenomena. I don't know. I wish we had um, the physicist that was here. <laughs> Last week, we had a really beautiful physicist. <laughs> anyway, so um, at this juncture, see, could it be unified? Yeah, I love the, because Einstein never finished unified field theory, but it resonates so much with Sankhya philosophy. Um, but yeah, exactly. So there's a field, there's some kind of field that connects these two things. Now, if you remember the modern theory of how the universe came into being, like you'll see in Stephen Hawking's brief history. Yeah, the Big Bang, exactly. I was just about to reference that. Lyric is one step ahead of me. <laughs> yeah, if you'll reference Stephen Hawking and our modern conception of how the universe came to being, you'll know that it emanated from a single point. There was an event, a singularity, the Big Bang, and there's something that you know some of the physicists today call the God Atom you know, the, the primordial atom, and that one thing split off into everything else. For those of you who were at my uh, Tattva's lecture about emanating existence, you know, from Satchidananda emanating out, it's the same kind of feeling where you take one thing and now it turns into all the things, but they're all made of the same stuff as that one thing. You know, and so what you have now is a huge quantum entanglement orgy or web or game of twister, choose your analogy, but we are all now affected not only by each other, but by every possible thing in the sample set of the universe, you know? So again, there's an argument from quantum mechanics that shows you you're actually connected to the stuff. And we'll go to that um, field theory now, because my fourth argument, I call it my uh, same stuff theory. <laughs> Uh, and this argument is this. You might have heard it from Carl Sagan about like stardust or whatever, like your body is made of um, the same stuff that stars are made of and you as a physical being are recycled materials from an exploding star, all of that. It's very beautiful, right? The reason these ideas are beautiful to you is because they resonate with truth. You know, so I'm just going to throw that in there. Beauty is truth and truth is beauty, right? Keats opens his Ode to Aggression Urn with that. And I think in uh, Endymion, he says, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. So when you hear an idea and it sounds aesthetically pleasing or beautiful, it's probably because it rings with truth. 
Or if you hear an idea that's true, it should be beautiful. You know, the mathematicians and quantum mechanics wax lyrical about stuff like this. <laughs> so here, you heard this idea before. But to go back to uh, Austin, I almost said Einstein, but yes, it would be in a sense true to say Einstein in place of Austin, since all these names become meaningless when we have this non-dual uh, experience. But uh, uh, to go back to Austin and his unified field theory reference, I really love that idea of a field because that's what my, the, my conception of the same stuff theory amounts to anyway. The idea that even if you take atoms, you know, ignoring quarks or whatever, and everything is made of atoms, then everything is made of the same basic stuff. And that those things are always touching, you know, at least um, on an earthly level, uh, getting the idea of a vacuum out of the picture, like all the atoms on earth are always to a degree touching. So think about this now. I'm over here and you're over there and there's like Zoom, you know, but my atoms, quote unquote mine, the atoms that make up my body are in contact with the atoms in the air, which, you know, if you follow the chain, eventually leads to the atoms in your air and the atoms in your body. So that means between me and you and between all of us, there is no space. You know, if you can dig that. Or there is only space. Both of those statements mean the same thing, that there is no separation between you and me. So whether you accept atoms as non-discrete, then if you do that, you dissolve all the boundaries and then we're all connected. Or you accept atoms as discrete. If you do that, you have to accept that they're all causally or, or at least uh, physically connected. Yeah. So that's the fourth argument, the uh, same stuff theory argument. <laughs> Okay, final one. This is perhaps the most esoteric. It's called abhasa. Yeah, so now we have to talk about why we feel a separation. You know, why is there a, a, a deep visceral sense of separation? I mean, you know, you could say, yeah, 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 sure. Quantum entanglement, sure. Mirror neurons, empathy, sure. Like Nish, I get it. All of this sounds smart and fancy, fine. But it doesn't change that I feel separation, you know. <laughs> So let's get into this next argument. This is probably the most esoteric argument in the uh, tradition of Jnana uh, Yoga, I think. And this argument is known as Ab Abhasa theory. It's uh, an argument from phenomology. Phenomology being the study of why it is we experience things the way that we experience them. And in this phenomenological argument, we take for the starting point this concept abhasa, which Sanskrit translates to um, shining. You know, that's, all, that's what it literally means. So the idea is any object, if you take this here cup and you look at the cup, it's an object. It exists outside of me and it comes into my perceptual field because of abhasas. It shines out to me, or actually it's more appropriate to say, I shine out to it. And you're going to hear why in a bit. But for now, just accept that there is some data coming to me from this object. Here's the crazy thing though. I am not perceiving this object with my eyes. I am perceiving it through my eyes. That's a key difference because what's actually happening is something in the world is attaching to the retina, causing some kind of mysterious chemical electro 
electrochemical reaction, which then goes to my brain. And, you know, the brain, we call it manas, mind or, or uh, practical brain. And my manas is what sees it. My brain sees it. My eyes don't see it. My eyes translate an experience in the world that my brain makes sense of in the inner world. You know, so I never really see this cup. And what I get from the cup is abhasas. And there are a few of them. The first obvious abhasa is solidity. You know, uh, maybe whiteness. You know, it's white. It's an abhasa. It's white. Uh, and maybe roundness. It's like kind of round or smooth. So those are all abhasas. They're like facts of the thing. But there are other abhasas too. The abhasa of... Um, Hold on, let's see. One of my favorite things in neuroscience is that we are literally just drawing lines of best fit. Yes, based on what we believe is out there. Exactly, exactly. And uh, we can actually tell you what's out there in yoga because you can see it directly. You can never see it with your mind, but I'll show you how to see it directly. Anyway, so here we have this thing. It's got these abhasas. I promise you it can be seen. That's one thing I'll guarantee. But anyway, so we have these abhasas, but we also have subtler abhasas. And that is, where have I seen this object before? Is also a crucial way of my seeing of this object. What use do I have for this object? How much do I like it? These are all abhasas that are as important to my perception of this object than the roundness, hardness, and whiteness of this object. You know, this is a very important idea because it says you can never see anything separate from your own internal representation of that thing. It rubbishes the idea of seeing things objectively. In fact, I'm going to take this one step further now. In Abhasa theory, it negates the existence of an objective world outside of you, independent of you. That's the final blow to objectivity. Because what it says is this. And uh, I have introduced this argument a couple of times. It appears in Bishop Berkeley. Heisenberg and also Schrodinger. Heisenberg and Schrodinger actually show it with math. Um, but the idea is this. You can never prove the existence. By the way, am I lagging? I keep getting the internet is unstable message. Yeah, yeah, I'm lagging. Yeah, Sorry you're lagging, bud. Am I back? Yeah, you're, you're good now. Okay, cool. If it does that, I'm sorry. <laughs> But, um, and, and if it does that and you miss a detail, like, please just tell me, I'll repeat it. So the next detail is really important. The detail is this. You can never prove the existence of a thing separate from you perceiving it. You can never prove it. You can never show a thing to exist independent of the perceiver, you know, and, uh, there's math for this. Heisenberg has a bunch of equations for it. Um, there's philosophy for it in Bishop Barclay, who is a phenomenologist or a, a empiricist. But the idea is generally that you and the thing that you're looking at are intrinsically linked in some way. And this is perhaps mysterious. We call it invariable concomitance, which is just a fancy word for saying where there is one, there must be the other. So where there is an object, there must be a seer of that object. And where there is a seer, here's the crazy thing, there must be an object to see, you know? So there's kind of a trinity in yoga. It's the holy trinity of yoga. And it's the knower, 
the known and the act of knowing. So you, the knower, are connected to this, the known, because you are both aspects of some third thing, the knowing. Maybe this sounds like the field. I don't know. Maybe the knowing is the unified field, you know? Okay. Now, what is the work of yoga? At this level, the work of yoga and spiritual philosophy is to move you away from identifying with the knower and also the known so that you can identify with the knowing, which contains both of those two things more. That's kind of the process. It's just changing your point of reference. And uh, Ryan asks, <laughs> uh, if you can't prove that things exist objectively, can you then not prove your own existence objectively? It's a great question. And it's true. You cannot prove the existence of the ego or the mind or the body, you know, because those are all objects, right? They're all objects. Like you can see the body, you can see the mind. And uh, if you're curious as to how to see the mind, after class, we'll do a Drig Drisha Viveka. I'll show you. There's a technique to kind of become the witness and watch the mind. Anyway, if you can see the mind, if you can see the body, you know that you aren't those things. That's one thing that you know because you're seeing it. So it's the known. You are the knower. The other thing that you know, though, is that there is an event occurring and you feel an inus, a sort of locality. That is your proof of existence. Your existence is in fact the only thing that doesn't need to be proved because it is the foundation for all other proofs. So it would be kind of uh, redundant to prove your own existence because as you are proving it, you are proving it. As you go about looking for the proofs, that's the proof. What is the proof that I have a tongue that I am talking to you? Do you need words and arguments to show you that I have a tongue? Do I even need to show you my tongue? No, no, no. The very fact that I'm talking necessitates that I have a tongue. Tongue, you know. And it's a little deeper than Descartes because Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. Descartes made a mistake. He didn't realize that in order to be aware of thinking, he is not the thinking thing. You know, Descartes thought all he was was a mind, but he forgot to realize that he wouldn't know he was a mind unless he was something not the mind to watch himself thinking. <laughs> Anyway, we won't get into the errors of Descartes. I could sp spend all night bashing Descartes, the great fool. I say it with respect. He's a dualist, so he's worthy of our, uh, our attack. <laughs> but anyway, um, yes, yes. So exactly. I, I like the cogito because one thing that it points to, Descartes' cogito, it points to that feeling that you have that is indisputable, the feeling that starts all this philosophy. Okay, so there we go. We're done with the illusion of separation. If Abhasa theory successfully shows that the existence of an external world is codependent with the existence of the internal world, at the very least, we can collapse the two. You know, at the very least, they can collapse in on one another. You know? So here's the implication, gang. This is the scary thing. If all of these arguments are internalized, you might realize that you are not separated from the thing you fear the most. You know, what is it? The thing that you fear the most, it's here with you now. There is no distance between you and it. That's chilling. It tells you that I'm sorry, but you cannot run from that which you fear. If it's death, not only is it definitely going to happen to you, but it already has as you will see with my arguments about time. So right now, 
Whatever you fear the most is here with you now. It's literally touching you through the atoms, through the field, you know? So this should tell you there's no use to running anymore. What you fear, you must now embrace. You must now face because it's here. And the flip side of this is what you want, what you desire, you must not chase because it's here now. (laughs) Do you see? Once you accept that you are not separate from the world around you, gone is lust. Gone is the desire to find completeness in another because you already are that now. Yes, annihilation and completion are with you all the time. But I I kind of mean in a less abstract way. I, I think I mean in a more like tangible way. Like think about the most alluring piece of chocolate cake. You know, you're not separate from it in this moment. In fact, you don't even actually want the chocolate cake. What you want is the flavor of consciousness that comes from eating the chocolate cake. It was never the chocolate cake. It was never your ideal lover. It was only the way that you felt inside that you thought you were going to feel like when you got those things. But if you take this whole mirror neuron stuff, then you know that you can stimulate yourself to feel anything. It's all in you after all. There is nothing a drug can do to you that you cannot do for yourself. I'll just put that out there. And through certain yogic techniques, you can go into states of rave-like ecstasy. You never need to go to El Segundo and, you know, buy it off the streets anymore. <laughs> but the idea is, 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 is deeply disturbing to some because it means you cannot run from what you're afraid of. It's here. And the Buddha said, we need to face that. The Buddha for him to become enlightened, had to face five demons. In fact, he even called them. He practiced goetic summoning. The Buddha was an evocator of demons and he faced them down one by one. So similarly, whatever it is that you fear isn't out there. If you're afraid of serial killers, if you're afraid of, I don't know, a disease or whatever it is that you might be afraid of, yeah, take your practical precautions, but realize that that fear isn't out there. It's, it's here in you because there is no out there. You know, and what you want the most is also here with you now because it's not out there. Do you see? So it's very subtle, but once you get rid of the idea of an in here and an out there, no longer do you see yourself as separate from the world around you and no longer do you see a world full of things to chase or things to run away from, you know? So that's the first thing. I realize we're now at eight o'clock. So I wanted to dispel three perceptual errors, but gone is the hour. <laughs> and we only got through one. <laughs> so um, at this juncture, I have two options. Either I continue and let you go. So if you need to leave, please leave. Um, do what you need to do tonight. Take care of yourself. I will record this so you can rewatch it later. And feel free to email me or text me questions, perhaps. Uh, if you'd like to stay, I will do perhaps one more, you know, um, time. So I'll just put that there. If you are heading out for the night, because I recognize it's quite late on the East Coast. Um, good night. Take care. I love you all. And uh, I will, as I finish, I will stick around indefinitely to field questions, etc. So if you'd like to stick around, I'll be here. Okay. Cool. (laughs) Nice, Vanessa. Even if it was just you, Vanessa, I'm here all night. Let's do it. Um, But uh, next thing, time. 
So I, I understand there's a lot to unpack. And I know I got through Abhasa theory rather quickly. Just wanted to get the like skeleton of the idea out. And then we'll continue to, you know, delve into it later. The next one is the illusion of time. So to start talking about time, uh, we have to talk about Kant. And Kant was one of the first Western philosophers to um, tell us that time is a, a mental categorizing of events. So Kant said time and space are our mental superimpositions onto reality. To Kant, it's just the way humans order things that makes up time. Kant dispelled the idea that time is an inherent feature of reality. Rather, it's a feature that we superimpose onto our experience of reality. Um, and that's kind of an interesting uh, move, you know. What about telomere? Oh, 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 yes, yes. Oh, the physical, yes, yes. Okay, so we have to address that. So the sun does rise and set, you know. That's obvious. Like the sun rises at a certain time and it sets at a certain time. Sand moves down the hourglass at a certain rate. The body decays. There are in nature these experiences of rates of change, you know? So change happens in the world. But just because change happens doesn't mean that time happens. Do you see? We're very quick to conflate change with time. Rate of change does not imply time, especially given our experience of time is anything but objective. Uh, you've heard the quote, um, time flies when you're having fun. Yes, time is a mental construct given how awareness experiences change. Exactly. Change is a fact. Um, the sun rises, the sun goes down. It's a change. The light changes. The body changes. Change is almost like uh, as Heraclitus said, Caden reminded me, is, is the constant. You know, change is the, the way of the world. But you experience time intensely idiosyncratically. You know, so when you're having fun, it flies. When you're bored, it's slow. Sometimes when you're at a lecture you like, the hour goes by. Sometimes when you're doing jnana yoga and we're talking about Drigdrishya Viveka, you fall asleep. <laughs> Uh, doesn't time need to happen for things to move at all? Yes, yes, yes. That's a great question, Lyric. And there's even a conversation about absolute zero, you know, zero Kelvin, the idea that in space right now, there are regions of space where time is stuck. You know, it's zero degrees Kelvin. It's absolute zero. So we must address that. Don't we need time for change? And I say no. Change happens. Change is something that happens in the world. And our experience of change makes us think that time is a thing. Yet, one way we can dispel time being a thing, this is my first argument, the subjective experience of time. One way we can dispel that time is a thing is to point out the intensely idiosyncratic and subjective existence of time. So you cannot really change when the sun goes up and when the sun goes down. That's a change in the world. You know, that seems to be happening. But your experience of how long that was changes every day. It changes depending on how you feel, depending on what you're doing, depending on who you're with. Day to day, your experience of change is temporally different, you know? So change is a thing, but let's not conflate change or at least let's not make time a factor of change. 
even though that's how we measure it on a graph, the rate of change. You know, we measure it in seconds. But I'm pointing now to the experience of psychological time, not so much the stopwatch, you know. I'm talking more about your experience of the stopwatch dictating how you feel. And we're going to get a little more esoteric here. But for now, uh, yes, let's see. We, couldn't you argue that we exist in a closed system? So even the argument that time is how we experience entropy is moot since nothing really goes anywhere. Yes, in the grand scheme of things. Okay, yeah, that was... Wow. I don't even need to do this. You're all, you're done. You know all of it already. I love it. That was my next argument that change is totally an illusion. It's a matter of... Sorry, buddy. No, sorry. no, no. It's good. Sorry, my, my brain just started clicking off on... Sorry. Yes, yes, yes. No, it's great. But yeah, no, at this level, remember I told you it would start basic and then we'll work our way up, you know? We started with vibes, we ended in a pasta theory. So now let's just start with you all experience time subjectively. You know, time flies, time slows. When you practice yoga, I can teach you in asana how to manipulate your heartbeat. Teach you how to slow your heartbeat and pulse down at will, you know. Um, and these experiences, as you can see, there are like many demonstrations that yogis do in the West to prove this stuff. Paramahansa Yogananda used to do it in front of an audience. Anyway, you can see that rates of change are totally subjective too. Anyway, if you can change the rate of your breath, the beat of your heart, so too does your perception of time change. I can give you more out of 10 minutes. And I can also make 10 minutes go faster. And you can all do that. You know, you can choose to become so... Um, you remember Catch-22? There was that character who was determined to live longer by staying bored. I don't know if you remember that novel... Joseph Heller or something. Anyway, there's a character who realized that time passes more slowly when he's bored. So he decided to just be as bored as he could so he could live longer. Kind of deep, right? But that's exactly the idea here is that you can dilate time and contract time based on how you manage your breath, how you manage your attention. So just because time is subjective, it's a blow to the existence of time objectively. Okay, now let's go up even higher. Now we'll talk about B theory of time. A lot of you have heard me discuss this before. Um, and I'll just put this here. B theory, really worth a Google search. Uh, I think you have to Google search B theory of time because there's also an economic theory called beta theory. It's a theory of economics. It's not that. It's B theory. It's different. So B theory of time comes from like a 60s movement of uh, philosophy of quantum mechanics. So there's a philosophy of science, but there's also a philosophy that pertains to quantum mechanics. It's B theory of time. So in the 60s, there was a philosopher named Mick Taggart. Also a great, yeah, B theory of time. That's it. So there's a philosopher named Mick Taggart and Mick Taggart was saying like we experience time in what he called an A series. So your experience of time is a flow. The future becomes the present and the present becomes the past. So he called this the moving present. His uh, uh, kind of theory was like there's a spotlight. You have a spotlight of attention and it moves, you know, through these three dimensionalities, future, present, past, you know, and the events are just going. Okay, now the question is, can you widen that spotlight? You know, is your present a fixed thing or can your spotlight become wider so that what might appear future to someone is present to you? This is deep because this is kind of the uh, quantum mechanic underpinning of intuition. If you have dogs, you might notice your dogs have this. 
dogs often know, it's actually kind of harrowing, but dogs sometimes know before you when your guests are going to leave. They'll get up and go to the door. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's different from dog to dog. A lot of us have traumatized our dogs with our own subconscious nonsense. But, you know, a, a dog has these weird intuitions about stuff, like hunches. It just knows when something's going to happen, like it's going to rain, earthquake. Yeah, I don't know. It's like when there was a tsunami, Eckhart Tolle makes this point in Indonesia in the 2000s, a lot of animals moves. A lot of animals just migrated. It was not a migratory pattern for them, but they all just went to higher ground way before the tsunami hit. You know, and scientists were thinking, did they detect the moisture in the air? Was there like a magnetic thing, you know? But it stumped them. They didn't know how the animals knew. You know, so animals have intuition. You have intuition. You sometimes know about things before it happens. Yeah, so maybe intuition is just your experience of, yes, an animal sense people's vibes, uh, we talk about that a lot in our uh, toolbox for a strong... Oh, here's my plug. I'm sorry. I was embarrassing. But uh, uh, in the new audio program, we talk about animals and vibes a lot, you know, and how snakes know heart, as Ram Dass's guru talks about. Anyway, that's why a yogi has nothing to fear. The serial killer will not kill you. Psychopath will not harm you. Robber will not steal from you. Snake will not bite you because your vibes are immaculate. <laughs> but they better be immaculate. Anyway, so um, the idea here is that B theory of time opposes McTaggart's A series. So McTaggart says time flows. The B theory is a quantum mechanic theory deriving from the, um, yes, the dog, uh, Vanessa's dog bugged out um, five minutes before the 18th March earthquake in Utah. Yes, Uncle Iroh is not scared of the robber at all in the Avatar because he's an enlightened being, right? He's part of a secret society. What is it? The White Lotus or something? <laughs> he's like part of a, a mystic lodge. <laughs> yeah, I love that show. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. <laughs> now, um, the fact of the matter is in B-theory, there are certain things that we see in quantum mechanics like backward causality. You know, so things in the future causing things as things in the past. So how can a cause be in front of its effect? You know, that totally doesn't make any sense with our current model of time. So in order to address or account for these backward causality uh, experimental things that they saw, they started to think in a B theory, which suggests that all of time exists in the now. All the past, all the future exists in one block of time that's always here, always now. The theory gets pretty weird. Uh, you should check out Barry Dainton's book called uh, Time and Space, where he really explores a lot of these theories. Very dense book, but he explores some of the weird ways that B theorists try to account for your perceptual experience of time. They talk about like a block and you go up on the block and then an A series person says, dude, that's just A series. You just did a shape. <laughs> but B-theorists are often stumped to tell you how you experience time. If it is a B-theory, if it's all happening now, why do you experience it as a flow? You know, Austin says single electron theory could account for it. Uh, how do you mean? Uh, so single electron theory, I was reading, uh, it's from I think John Wheeler, if I remember correctly, but the idea there is it's a I can't remember if it's pre or post uh, the unified field theory, but like 
there's now more theories that are arguing that the unified field theory is a better way to look at it and that electrons are like these, these like uh, excitations in the field that are like popping in and out of existence. But basically oh, yeah. single electron theory is going off of uh, the fact that electrons kind of like jump from one group to another group. They don't really seem to be a discrete number in the universe. They kind of like, like literally phase in and out of existence and in the, these, these fields or these clouds. So the single electron theory uh, was something posited as a thought experiment that there's like literally just one electron, but it just moves backwards and forwards in yes. time. And it exists essentially outside of time or uh, in the more modern theories, it's that there's this unified field of energy. And then what we call electrons are just areas in the field that get excited and yes, like yes. pop up Correct. like kernels, essentially. Correct. Correct. Um, All, yeah. But yeah, so that's that could account for the B, the the consciousness of B theory because I mean, consciousness seems to be this like epiphenomenon of the energy of our nervous system or our brains or whatever, when it all works in tandem with each other. Yes, uh, yes. And that's just energetic. So it could still operate under the same theory as single electron where it just like moves, moves. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly right. So I think the unified field theory is again, a good place to look because um, as lyric is, you know, uh, parsing this out in terms of blocks. So like fourth dimension, third dimension. Um, I think the unified field theory does a nice job of putting all those dimensions together and just calling it one fabric, space-time. You know, it's one thing, space and time. So it's not like there are three dimensions and here's a fourth and then there's a fifth. It's all just like one sheet. And there are certain things that happen in the sheet that account for experiences, like the single electron that Austin told us about, or densities that turn into matter, all that stuff. Uh, ultimately though, if you see time and space as this one thing, yeah, it's the idea that it's all here now, it's all one field. And the idea that there is a past and a future is only true insofar as your flashlight is small. But through certain yogic practices like meditation, you grow that flashlight and you'll first start to experience this as intuition. And also your complexes show up, your past traumas become more available to you because now it's all here now. You know, so they say yoga is like opening up Pandora's box because you really dig deep into your psyche. So what you do is you throw open the doors to a bigger now. And that now necessarily includes all the yesterdays and all the tomorrows. It also includes all your past lives. So that's why you have memory of your past lives. Not because they happened before, but because they're happening right now. Do you see? So Avatar Aang can talk to the other avatars, not because they came before him, but because they're all doing their avatar jobs in the same block of time right now. You know, so that's kind of a crazy idea. But why does all of this matter though? So I've given you now like seven, seven arguments about separation and time. And just to close right now, I'm going to try to put it all together. And I'm going to put it together in this way. Uh, we were very in our heads. You know, we talked a lot about um, uh, quantum mechanics. It was very kind of heady and theoretical today. And the question is, why do we care about any of this stuff? Why are we talking about this? I'm not here to give you intellectual titillation. You know, as much as you might enjoy that and as much as I might enjoy that, I really don't want that to be the point of this discussion. It's not about how many quantum mechanics concepts we can take with us to use at dinner parties, you know, to impress our friends. It's not about that. It's about this. This next piece is crucial. 
You are only frightened of the boogeyman in the closet insofar as you, as you feel like it's real. Like you actually are convinced that in that closet, and you know what? You might have seen it, you know, a trick of the light maybe, but you can't deny what you saw. There was a shape in there, you know, a mangled, frightening shape in the closet. And you are here in bed with the quilt over you and you dare not search the closet because the boogeyman's in there, you know? And the Buddha said, look at it, look at it. What do you see? And you're turning away. You're like, I don't want to look at sickness. I don't want to look at old age. I don't want to look at death. And the Buddha says, yeah, nobody does. You know, we put all our old folks in a home, our sick people, we hide. We don't talk about death. It's a taboo. Nobody does. But the Buddha says, please look, please just look at the boogeyman for a while. And the longer you look at the boogeyman, the more you decide to investigate it. So maybe you kind of climb out of the bed and you crawl in the dark. And the closer you get to the boogeyman, the scarier it is until eventually you open the closet door and you realize it was all just clothes. You know, it was no boogeyman at all. That's what meditation is. Meditation is the process of seeing for yourself what I'm trying to sell right now. The idea that there's no separation, no time. But until you have that experience, it might be helpful to tell yourself or at least be told or at least take on faith that there is no boogeyman. If I just told you that there is no separation in time, please believe me, you wouldn't be very satisfied. But I hope that maybe by giving you lots of different arguments, you could see that it's reasonable and in fact quite intelligent to disbelieve separation in time. So what do you achieve? If now you buy some of these arguments or if some of these arguments are like kind of speaking to you, even though you feel time, even though you feel separation, you can convince yourself that they aren't real that they can't hurt you. So I'm going to close now in these five lines of math. And it's just some math, you know, it's like just some logic. And the first line is this. Time is an act of consciousness. Some of you have heard this equation before. So that's the first line. Time is an act of consciousness. What is it? Consciousness of the past plus consciousness of the future equals time. So just being aware of your past and being aware of your future constitute your experience of time. But here's the thing. Your personality is also consciousness of past plus consciousness future. You know, so if you didn't have any memories of who you were, or if you didn't have any goals of who you want to be tomorrow, you couldn't really articulate a personality you know, you couldn't really tell me who you are. Um, and that's kind of remarkable that your personality is entirely based on time. You know, it's entirely an act of consciousness. Now, here's the final line. Uh, the, the next line is suffering is an act of time. You know, so suffering as consciousness of the past equals, um, what do you call it? Regret, resentment, trauma, uh, complexes, or even nostalgia. So whenever you suffer in these ways, it's because you're conscious of the past. Even a good memory in the past can cause suffering in the now because now doesn't compare to that. You know, um, Suffering is also consciousness of future, which appears as anxiety, fear, 
trepidation, and even excitement. You know, so even if you're excited about something tomorrow, it can cause suffering now because you're like, "Oh, I wish I could be there already," or you're afraid because when you do get there, it might not meet your expectations, as countless things have let you down in the past anyway. So, if suffering is nothing but an act of time, and if your personality is nothing but an act of time, if you are able to disbelieve in the illusion of time, you, in one fell swoop, end your idea of who you are, and with that, your idea of suffering. This is why the statement "be here now" is really huge. You know, because when I say "be here now," when Ramdas says "be here now," um, what is implied is end time to end the personality to end suffering. So you can start to do this right now. Anytime a memory from the past surges up, you know it to be an illusion. You know that that didn't isn't there in the past. It's here in the now. And when a memory of the future comes up, you know that it isn't out there waiting for you. It's here now. And so it can all be dealt with right now. And the only way to deal with it, here's the clincher, is to look at it. So we'll end where we started. The fundamental error is we're not seeing things the way that they are. As long as we don't see correctly, we suffer, because ultimately suffering is a feedback mechanism. For what? For misalignment with reality. That's all suffering is. When you touch a hot oven, suffering tells you to pain tells you to pull it away, pull your hand away. You know, it's good. You welcome pain. So now welcome suffering because the suffering is here to show you that you are entertaining thoughts or entertaining perceptions that do not line up with the way things actually are, and the only thing you have to do is work to refine your concepts uh, to see things as they are. So when you have vidya, which I'm just going to define as true seeing, when you have this vidya, that's the only way to dissolve suffering. You know, and that's why this philosophy is practical. It's a way for you in your moments of pain to remember that this is in the mind, that this isn't real, that that thing that happened to you didn't happen to you, because there is no you for it to have happened to. And it's powerful because it gives you the feeling that we're all in this together. I don't need to go to bed at any time today. I don't need to take care of myself because why should I set up boundaries in a world where there are no boundaries? You know, why do I need anybody to see me or validate me when there is no me to be seen or validated at all? If I recognize this body to be nothing but empty space and this mind to be only a trick of light, I am no longer afraid of death. Because do what you will to this body, it will scream and shout. It might cry, "Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me?" You know, you can do what you will to this mind, drag its reputation through the mud. But what would that mean to me, me who has nothing to do with these illusions?